us. Thank you for um, children's ministry and thank you for gospel partners. Thank you for moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and small groups who have raised their hand and said, we want to be a part of passing on our faith to the next generation. And Lord, I pray that this would be an amazing week in the lives of kids, that they would come to know Jesus and learn to follow them with follow him with everything they have. And we do pray that this VBS would, would be a time when kids would say yes to pressing play in, the, in their life with Jesus. And we pray for our church that we could continue to be a church that values and puts a priority on the next generation. We pray that you would help us to be creative in how to pass on the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Help us to pass it on to the next generation so that it doesn't end with us. We pray for kids that nothing would keep them from hearing about Jesus. We pray that homes would be safe places for kids to learn about Jesus this week. And we pray for the future generation of pastors and teachers and missionaries who will be raised up from this generation and for the coming generation of doctors and businesswomen and people who will make Christ known in the marketplace, who will meet Jesus for the first time this week. And we pray that you would raise up laborers for your harvest field, for the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. We beseech you, Lord of the harvest, to send out workers for your kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, uh, we're going to keep going in our study of 1 Peter. And if you're here for the first time this week or you've just started coming to Good News, this year we've been walking through the book of 1 Peter uh, over these past few months. We've been walking through the book of 1 Peter. We're going to keep going in 1 Peter. Then we're going to go through 2 Peter. Why 1 and 2 Peter? Because Peter puts his finger on an area of life and ministry in this book that we all need to learn from, and it's this, that to stand for Jesus in a culture that's increasingly hostile to our faith, if, if we're going to stand for Jesus in a culture that's increasingly hostile to our faith, oh man, we need to be equipped with the gospel we have to be equipped with an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So we're walking through First and Second Peter, and we're learning from Jesus how to become equipped to stand for Christ in the midst of a culture that's increasingly hostile to our faith. So we'll pick up in verse 21 with our study this morning. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Why, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is God's word. My uh, wife, when she was in college, my wife was a lifeguard at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She had to oversee the swim exams that all the seniors had to take in order to graduate from the University of North Carolina. You haven't seen a guy swim for his life until you've seen a, a defensive lineman who's been drafted to play for the San Francisco 49ers try and swim across a 50-meter pool. And here's my 5'3 wife, charged with figuring out a way to get him across. My daughter grew up. She became a lifeguard, and she worked as a lifeguard through high school. And in lifeguarding, here's something you learn. Reach, throw, row never ever go. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ didn't follow that advice? Aren't you glad that, that when it came to saving us, Jesus didn't say, well, let me see how they can do working it out on their own. I'll just let them, I'll let them tread water a little bit longer. Maybe they can figure it out. Now, why would, why would that be good advice when it comes to life-saving? Well, because the most dangerous person to you in a life-saving event is the person that you're trying to save because they'll grab hold of anything to try and keep themselves above the water. We need someone who can come for us, who's strong enough, holy enough, willing enough, loving enough to save us. The good news of the gospel is not how Jesus sits on the shoreline and teaches us all how to swim. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, at great cost to himself, left heaven, came to earth, lived the life we should have lived, was willing to die the death we deserve to die, rose again, and he offers us eternal life. And when that truth of the gospel comes into the very center of our lives, then we will be willing to do what will be required to reach our generation with the gospel. And what will be required of us for us to reach our generation with the gospel is to be willing to follow Jesus' example in suffering. Because Jesus models suffering. He does it first as our suffering Savior. Then he does it with us as his church is empowered by the gospel to suffer on behalf of others so that others can be given the opportunity to hear and respond to the message of the gospel. This is tough business. This is a tough work. This is a difficult task that Jesus has left for the church, but he hasn't left us without a resource in the gospel. He hasn't left us without his presence in the Holy Spirit. 
He hasn't left us without heroes and examples of people who have gone before us who have been willing to suffer for Jesus and with Jesus. And you can look back over church history from the apostles and their willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ to the example of the early church, like men in the early church like Polycarp who suffered and died in the cause of Christ, to examples throughout the Reformation, men who, and women who are willing to pay the cost, to people in the modern missions movement like Helen Rosevere and Nate Saint and Roger Udarian and Peter Fleming and Jim Elliott. Men who were willing to sacrifice themselves so that others could hear the gospel. To people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in the midst of the culture of Nazi Germany was willing to stand in the cause of Christ and preach both truth and back that truth up with a willingness to suffer on behalf of the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906. He lived until he was until 1945. Do the math. That's he was like 30 what? 9 when he died. He was a youngster when he died at the hands of the Nazi regime. Dietrich Bonhoeffer came to faith in Christ as a young man and he was called into ministry and when Hitler came to power in 1933, Dietrich Bonhoeffer along with a a number of other pastors, they gathered together and they stood for truth in a culture that grabbed hold of a false gospel, a false hope, a false savior named Adolf Hitler. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others stood for truth and they said, no, we have one Savior and it's not the Fuhrer. It's a suffering Savior named Jesus Christ. As this confessing church began to train pastors for this task of equipping the church in the difficult days of World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a little book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he walked through the Sermon on the Mount. And, in, and we, as we go through our message this morning, we're going to learn from Peter and from Jesus that Jesus models suffering, but we're going to listen to someone who suffered, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We're going to listen to his words to encourage us as we walk through this passage to see Jesus both as Savior, as model, and as the one who's with us in our suffering while we are seeking to tell our generation the unchanging truth of the gospel. Now, really important, just clarify one thing. When I say suffering... There is a suffering that you and I experience as human beings in a fallen world with broken bodies. There is a suffering that we all experience, a physical suffering that we experience in this fallen world. And as I, as your pastor, look out in this room, I see many of you who are currently going through suffering physical suffering, you are coming out of seasons of physical suffering, and all of us, maybe no one's ever told you, none of us are getting out of this alive. All of us will experience 
physical suffering. And the hope of the gospel is able to strengthen us and help us as we face physical suffering. But this suffering that Peter is describing and that Jesus models is more than just physical suffering. It's suffering for the cause of Christ when we are falsely accused and spoken of as being the problem. Here's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer described that suffering. The messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all the division which rends cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be surely tempted to desert their Lord. But the end is also near, and they must hold on and persevere until it comes. Only he will be blessed who remains loyal to Jesus and his word until the end. The suffering that we experience, and isn't what Dietrich Bonhoeffer described what we observe in our own times? That the church is, is blamed for being on the wrong side of history. That people who are faithful to the scriptures are told that our beliefs are old-fashioned. Get with the times. We're told that not only are our beliefs old-fashioned, but they're actually harmful to people. We're accused of being harmful to people, and yet we know in our hearts of hearts that what lives in us is love. What we want is for people to come to know the loving one, Jesus Christ. And yet, there is this suffering. If we go back one verse to where we were last week in verse 20, it says this, What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So Peter learned from Jesus. Jesus taught Peter to love those who were his enemies and pray for those who persecuted him. Jesus had told Peter in the Sermon on the Mount, and he tells us, he said, listen, if you treat people who love you well, where's the grace in that? See, it doesn't cost us anything to love the people who love us. That's easy. But to love the people that hate us and who accuse us of being evildoers, that requires grace. That requires an experience of the love of God in Christ. That requires knowing Jesus as Savior. So I want to walk through these, ver these four verses. And what I want us to see first is that Jesus is our Savior. Let's start in verse 21. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. The Christian life is what Jesus has done for you. The good news of the gospel is not what Jesus asks you to do for him. The good news of the gospel is what Jesus has done for you. This is good news. 
You can stop working your head off to try and please God because now you know the one who has done it for you. He has loved for you. He has lived for you. He has suffered for you. And he says, I am the original. I am the original. I am the example. The word example in Greek is the word hupogrammas. And it's used of a, a teacher who would take a wax tablet and they would write the grammar for their student. And the student would learn to write by following the grooves on the wax tablet. Jesus Christ is the original. Jesus Christ went first. Jesus Christ went farthest. Jesus Christ did it all. He gave it all. And he did it for you. That's the message of the gospel. What Jesus has done for us. And what has Jesus done for us? He was willing to suffer for us. Verse 22. Who committed no sin. Nor was any deceit found on in his mouth. No one ever lived the way Jesus lived. No one ever lived a life of full, complete obedience to the Father in every way, in every thought, in every word, in every action. Jesus Christ was obedient to the Father in everything. Jesus lived a holy, perfect life. He did that for you. Jesus Christ was able to control his tongue for the sake of holiness. Now, for, just try this. Just see how long you can go without boasting, criticizing, blaming, defending yourself. It won't be long before that organ of your mouth reveals what's actually happening in the organ of your heart. But with Jesus, there was no deceit in his mouth. There was no lie ever on his tongue. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and he did it for you to rack up a record of rightness, a record of righteousness that could be credited to your account when you believe in Jesus. Peter goes on. And he says that this perfect man, Jesus, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When Jesus Christ was squeezed when he was accused falsely, when he was reviled, when people rejected him, when people hated him, when they insulted him. He didn't return insult for insult. He didn't return injury for injury. He was, as we'll learn later in Peter, as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He willingly gave himself for what purpose? 
not only to have a record of righteousness for you, but also to be willing to give himself as a sinless sacrifice for you. Verse 23, or verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Jesus lived a perfect life and then Jesus at the end of his life climbed on the cross and on the cross he himself bore our sin. The wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. And Jesus Christ did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves by becoming our substitute. Jesus went to the cross and he paid the full and awful penalty that our sins deserve. He took your place. He took my place. A just consequence of the way that Dave has lived Dave's life is death. God is just in punishing Dave for sin. But God in his love chose to punish his son, Jesus Christ, in my place, in your place. Jesus went to the cross and he suffered for you. He did it for you so that all who repent and turn to Jesus Christ in faith could have his record of righteousness credited to our account and have his sin-bearing substitutionary death accepted as our penalty. When we turn from our sin and we put our trust in Jesus, he says, now you get to have a better leader. You get to have a better Lord. You get to have someone to follow. Verse 25. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. There was a time in the garden when God made all things and he placed Adam and Eve in a garden. There was a time when God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. But when Adam and Eve rejected God's leadership, when he, they rejected his authority, they failed to believe that God knew best how to live life. God said, have it your way until a time came when Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died. And now he says, come my way. Follow me. Let me be your shepherd. What's a shepherd? A shepherd is someone who lovingly leads dumb animals, dirty animals, lost animals. And the shepherd you have in Jesus Christ, you have in Jesus Christ a loving leader. You have in Jesus Christ a good shepherd. When you read Psalm 23, that's Jesus for you. Read John 10 about your good shepherd. How good a shepherd do you have? You have such a good shepherd that he was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. You have in Jesus a loving leader. You have in Jesus a guardian for your soul. Do you wish that there could be somebody who's wiser than you are who could lead, lead you in life? 
You have in Jesus Christ a guardian for your soul, literally a bishop, an overseer. You have an overseer, someone who can watch out for everything in life, who's wiser than you are, who knows better what's happening in the universe than you do. And he says, I love you. I'm crazy about you. I've demonstrated it in my willingness to suffer in your place. So trust me. Now, how does that get into our life? How does that come to become real in our life? It begins when when we admit and believe and commit to the truth of the gospel. In Revelation 3, verse 20, it says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. That's Jesus' invitation for you to repent, turn from your life of going your own way, And believe the gospel, put your trust in Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. This good news of his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, and his present offer to you to let him be your shepherd. Let him be your guardian. Have you ever taken Jesus up on his offer? Have you ever invited him into the center of your life and said, Jesus, I want to go your way? If you haven't, won't you? Right where you're sitting this morning, right where you are watching online, you can put your trust in Christ for salvation. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Listen, come up after the service. I would love to assist you. But listen. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, then I want you to know the life Jesus has for you, it's an eternal kind of life, but the kind of life that Jesus invites us to as we follow him may, no, will include suffering for his cause. And that's why in verse 21 he says, Follow in his steps. Jesus is the, is the Savior. He's put the lines in the wax, but now he invites us to follow in his steps, to go where he goes, to do what he does. And he says, I will be with you every step of the way. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Cost of Discipleship, says this, it's only because he became like us that we can become like him. It's only because he became like us that we can become like him. But when we follow Jesus, we do begin to take on his likeness. So let's walk through these verses again. But let's see how he enables us to walk in his steps, to follow in his steps. You have been called for this purpose. Your life isn't meaningless. Your life has a purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. If we're going to live in a hostile culture, let us suffer, but let us suffer for the truth. Let's not suffer for things that are 
secondary. Let's, think, let's suffer for things that are of first importance. Let's suffer for the truth of the gospel. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. How do we follow in Jesus' steps? How do we bring our tongues under his control? By faith. Because the Christian life isn't achieved, it's received. The Christian life isn't something we muster up. I'm going to be like Jesus today. I'm going to be like Jesus today. I'm going to be like Jesus today. And then I'm not like Jesus. Oh, well, I'll be like Jesus tomorrow. No, the Christian life, we receive life from Jesus. He helps us. He empowers us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us live as followers of Christ should. And when the gospel is reigning in our hearts, our hearts are set free from having to achieve and defend and boast and brag and all the things that cause us to use our tongues for things other than telling others about the greatness and glory of what Jesus has done. We do it by continually entrusting ourselves to Jesus. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. If we're to live for Christ and follow in his steps, then there's a death we have to die and there's a life we need to receive. Here's how Bonhoeffer describes it. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffered suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the beginning. The beginning of the Christian life is Jesus' invitation. Come and die. It's a great way to come to life. Come and die to what you think of you. All those stories you tell yourself, all those terrible twos that you keep running around in your head, I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too dumb, I'm too smart. Die to what you think of you and come alive and die to what other people say of you. Some of you are running around in your head as what someone has said is what you think is true of you, is what someone else has said about you. And what you need to do, what you're given the opportunity to do is to die to what other people say of you. 
so that you can come alive to what Jesus says is true of you. What Jesus says is true of you is yes, you're a wanderer, but oh, you have a shepherd and a guardian for your heart. And when that's true of you, you will be willing and able to suffer. And that's the life that Jesus said was really life. Jesus said that a blessed life, a happy life, is a life lived following him and being willing to suffer in the steps he's laid out for us. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Blessed are you, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Instagram does not have a filter to make the Sermon on the Mount pretty enough for us to want to follow Jesus. There's not a, there's not a filter that makes the gospel pretty enough for us to say, that's what I want, Jesus. Sign me up. In fact, I'm such a chicken as a pastor, I would never naturally pick to preach on 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24 if I hadn't bound myself to just preaching through this book of 1 Peter. Because I would much rather preach on something else other than suffering for the cause of Christ. But Jesus says suffering for the cause of Christ is the pathway to blessedness, to happiness. And so I tell you. And it's that kind of life that you and I need to live. It's what may be required. It's what is required. Rod Dreher reflects on the experience of men like Richard Wormbrand, who was a pastor in Romania during the communist uh, control of Romania. And Rod Dreher, in his book, Live Not by Lies, he says this, feeble forms of the faith will be quickly burned away in the face of the slightest persecution. Pastor Wormbrand once wrote, that there were two kinds of Christians, those who sincerely believe in God and those who just as sincerely believe that they believe. You can tell them apart by, the act, by their actions in decisive moments. Maybe this week, maybe this week could be a decisive moment in your life where you put a stake in the ground and you say, Jesus I pray, help me go below the pain line. Help me cross the pain line this week. Why would we pray that? Because Jesus said that's the happy life. Jesus said that's the path to knowing him. You want to know Christ? Do you want to have fellowship with Christ? Do you want Christ to be with you 
I want him to be with you. I want him to be with me. I want to know Christ. Jesus says through Paul that the pathway to knowing him is to pray, Jesus, help me to cross the pain line this week. Jesus said that's the path to knowing him. In Philippians chapter 3, we read this. I want to know him. That's my desire for every single one of us, is that we would know Christ. To know him is to know a fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings becoming conformed to his death. Paul said it because Jesus said it. Peter says it because Jesus said it. To know him is to have fellowship with him in his sufferings. So to know Jesus, we have to ask him to help us cross the pain line. Here's the other reason. The other reason is this. To make him known, we have to ask Jesus to help us cross the pain line. To know Jesus is the best thing we could ever know. To make Jesus known is the best thing we could ever give our lives for. Now I rejoice, Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made and minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. What is this filling up of what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We add nothing to Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross, but the filling up of the afflictions is the gap between those who currently know about Jesus and those who need to know about Jesus. And the gap between those who know about Jesus and those who need to know about Jesus can only be bridged when the church is willing to suffer because that will be the cost. And I wish it wasn't. But it is. Because that's what the Bible teaches. And I'm under its authority. Now, Jesus met Dietrich Bonhoeffer And Dietrich Bonhoeffer met Jesus. And just before his death, just a month before the war was over, he sent a message back to a friend in England. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. This is the last thing spoken of about Pastor Bonhoeffer before his death by a doctor who was there. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. 
At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. But we all have. We've all seen a man die entirely submissive to the will of God. His name is Jesus. And he did it for you. And he did it for Dietrich Bonhoeffer because there was no other way. Pastor Bonhoeffer is a hero, but he's not a savior. But he knew a savior who was willing to submit himself to the will of the Father and give himself a ransom for many. Where do you learn to love like that? By inviting Jesus Christ into the very center of your life, seeing in him all your sin forgiven and a perfect record of righteousness credited to your, to your account, trusting him as the shepherd and guardian of your soul. And as you entrust yourself to him with the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of your life, you will be set free to even be able to love the people in your life that snicker and sneer and laugh and say, oh, come on, that old stuff. And you'll be willing to pay the price that is necessary to fill up what's lacking in the affliction of Jesus, both to know him and to make him known until he comes again. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. Nothing that I've said this morning comes naturally to me or to anyone in this room. It requires the work of your Holy Spirit. It requires the work of the gospel. It requires us to go to you, Jesus, and to ask, Jesus, help me cross the pain line this week. Lord, we ask you, help us cross the pain line to know you. Help us cross the pain line to make you known. And oh, Jesus, I pray that you would draw every heart in this room and everyone watching online, draw us all into the story of the gospel that you were willing to live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die. And you now invite us to follow you as our shepherd and our overseer. If you've never received him, won't you receive him now? Jesus, I admit I've sinned against you in many ways and I'm sorry. Jesus, I believe that you lived for me and you died for me and you rose for me. Jesus, I commit to following you all the days of my life. If you would help me become the person you want me to be. Jesus, all of us could repent and turn back to the gospel afresh this morning. We could all say to you, Jesus, help me. Help me cross the pain line. All to the praise of your grace. 
what credit would there be in doing it for any other reason? We pray this in Jesus' name.